Good morning, everybody. My name's Brian. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship, and I'm very glad to be here this morning to share the word with you. It's one of the privileges of um, being with all of you, just that I can be in the word and then share together with you what what I've been learning uh, with the hopes that God's going to teach all of you too. How many of you have ever gotten a letter like this in the mail? You, you, those of you in the front can probably see the, the numbers on this envelope. It says 0% in big letters on the front. This, of course, is a, a letter from credit card companies trying to convince us to sign up for their credit cards. And uh, in doing that, they put in the big letters on the front of the envelope, 0% interest, 40,000 bonus miles, 0% interest, 0% interest. That's what's in the big letters. But, of course, if you open this up, and uh, and look at what's actually the offer. Um, whoa, <laughs> that uh, that zero percent—that's an introductory interest rate. And if you keep the card after that and carry a balance, boy, you're paying some really high interest. <clears throat> Tell you what, seeing that interest rate, uh, I'll just uh, pay it off every month. Thank you very much. The uh, it's natural for uh, for people when they're selling something to emphasize the benefits and minimize the costs, right? In fact, we expect that. In fact, it would be pretty weird to think about getting a letter from a credit card company that in big letters on the envelope says uh, 23% interest. <laughs> that, that would be pretty weird. Uh, Becca's flagging me to remind me about uh, the, if you need a Bible... Um, please, uh, she has those, or a pen, or an outline. She can line you up with those. So just make eye contact or raise your hand. She can help you with that. <clears throat> so we're going to see this morning how Jesus is different from a salesman. <clears throat> a salesman hawking his product tries to emphasize the best things about it and minimize, or if he can get away with it, not even tell you about the drawbacks. But this morning, we're going to see in our text, uh, Jesus is going to get very real with his disciples about the cost of following him. He's not hiding. He's not holding anything back. He's getting very real. And the cost is significant. Of course, we're not talking about interest rates here. We're talking about the hatred of the world, to put a headline on it. <clears throat> Jesus is very different from a salesman. He, he gives us a very real picture of the cost of following him. And at the same time, though, um, we can see something of God's character in this. We see, first of all, that God is not someone to deceive us, uh, to give us a bait and switch. He also cares for us very well. And I want to take a moment as we, as we pick up a text that, that it actually is kind of hard to read. It's because of its grittiness and because of the real cost. Um, I want to say a word to, to those of you who, um, who are here not having, um, sure of your commitment to Christ. Maybe you're just checking things out, want to know more about who Jesus is and you're not quite sure yet. This is, uh, this is not the textbook text uh, to preach about the goodness of Christ. It's not the first one we would think of, but it is the one we're looking at as we go through the text today. But I want you to listen in. I encourage you to do that because you'll see God's character and you'll see 
not just the cost, but even at all times, even when we're looking at the darkest costs of following Christ, we see the benefits as well. They're always present and they're always there. And so you'll hear that too. Especially if you have uh, come today and you have heard a presentation of Christianity that perhaps um, was a little oversimplified. Uh, Perhaps one that said something like, just trust Jesus and everything will be puppies and rainbows. And maybe that rang hollow for you because it doesn't really match up with what you see in real life. This is the right the right week for you to be here. <clears throat> so we're going to read this text together. It's on page 586 if you're looking at the church Bible. <clears throat> we're starting in verse 18 of chapter 15 of the book of John. <clears throat> if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. We're going to deal with this topic of the hatred of the world by looking at a couple of questions, and you'll see that on your handout, those are the two questions that mark the sections on the handout. We're going to ask, what is this hatred all about? And we're also going to consider how to respond to the world's hatred. So we'll start with this. What, what is this hatred all about? Why is it that people get so worked up when people say they follow Jesus? The first answer to that Jesus gives in verse 19, where he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This this answer is something just of human nature. Uh, we humans are, are very concerned about questions about who's on our side 
and who's against us. Who's part of our group and who's part of the enemy group. And sometimes we can be pretty irrational when it comes to these questions. As an example, how many of you have ever noticed that every American politician wears a flag pin on his or her lapel at every public appearance? Have you ever wondered about that? Well, uh, President Obama learned about this, uh, maybe the hard way, in the beginning of his 2008 campaign. Uh, he made some appearances where he did not wear a flag pin, and he was asked about it, and he gave an answer that, that I think is admirable. He said, you know, um, I prefer to share my ideas and let that speak to my patriotism. I think that's, that's a very noble thought. But it may be a little too idealistic given human nature and our ability to set up litmus tests to see whether someone's in our group or in the opposing group. So at appearance after appearance, he was asked about it and it would always cause this little flare up and it was not the kind of attention he wanted. And he finally decided that, that the ideal wasn't worth the cost. And uh, by the time the general election came around, he was wearing that lapel pin. Uh, every appearance, and he still does. <clears throat> uh, we can be uh, pretty irrational and pretty particular about the things we require of people to show that they're, they're, they're with us, they're part of our group. And so if not wearing a lapel pin is enough to make somebody suspect, think about the change that happens in someone's life when he follows Christ, when he or she becomes a follower of Jesus. And the things that Jesus calls us to do. Jesus calls us to live according to a moral standard that does not change with the times. And this may not cause too much of a problem in certain instances because uh, we end up with, we do end up with a kind of different set of commitments from the world. A Christian is committed to a certain set of things that's different from what the world is committed to, which isn't always a big deal. Like, for instance, we're meeting here together on Sunday morning. That's a commitment that Christians have. It's part of what we understand of following Christ. The world, at least in America, the world doesn't really have a problem with that, right? Non-Christians aren't offended that Christians meet together on Sunday mornings. It's like, yeah, whatever, you can do your church thing. That doesn't bother me. But there are other areas where the, the commitments of, of being a Christian run up against the, the most deeply held commitments uh, that the world has. And uh, the classic example of this, where there's been flare-ups all through history, is sexuality. The world believes that, that sexuality is the fullest expression of individuality. And furthermore, uh, especially American culture, our culture, Western culture perhaps, believes that expressing one's individuality is really the highest moral calling. This is evident in the phrase, be true to yourself, that that is really the thing that everyone should do. And if you're not true to yourself, that's you're falling short of what you should be doing. And so the world is very against any kind of prescription of how sexuality should be expressed. That's what gives rise to the question, how dare you tell me who I should love? 
because the two commitments are in just complete opposition to each other. And it's something that the world holds deeply. So we end up with a situation where the call of the Christian, the call to holiness, to live a life that reflects God's character, run, can, um, collides violently with what the world expects. And so you end up with, with hatred, hatred from the world, from following Christ. <clears throat> this, in fact, leads us into a second uh, answer to the question of what is this hatred all about? We see this in verses 22 and 24, where Jesus repeats a similar idea. The way he says it in 24 is this. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. What's happening here is that Jesus is saying that his words and his deeds reveal the sin of the world. Because Jesus came preaching a message of holiness and the need to, to follow God's law, to be, to, to commit oneself to the Lord, to, to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your strength. And because he came doing things that no one else did, performing miracles on a scale that, that no one could hope to match, that made it abundantly clear to anyone who observed that this man was from God. Because he did those things, he showed up the poverty of the religious leaders, their spiritual poverty. He uncovered the emptiness that was in their way of living, that they were teaching and that gave them the worth that they they were looking for. And how many of you enjoy having your shortcomings, or especially your wrongdoings, exposed? I know I don't. No, nobody enjoys that. And when it happens, when Jesus did it, it provoked hatred. People hated him because he preached these messages and because he did these things. And in the same way, Jesus says to his disciples, as you preach my message and as you live in a way that shows who I am, people will hate you for it. People hate to have their wrongdoings uncovered. This, this is increased all the more when you come into um, the opportunities to bear witness for Christ. That's a, men, uh, a phrase Jesus mentioned at the, toward the end of the text that we looked at. And this is a third answer to this question. What is this hatred all about? We incur hatred when we bear witness to Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus mentions this in verses 26 and 27 saying first that the Spirit would come and bear witness about him, and then to the disciples, you also will bear witness. Now, the the idea of bearing witness could be used to mean lots of things, but here I, I think we can think of it just in the simple terms of what the word expresses, being a witness. Think of the man born blind uh, that we read about several chapters back in the book of John. This is the man who... Uh, his whole life had been, had been suffering under his disability that he couldn't see, so he couldn't work in any substantial way um, until the day when Jesus came and Jesus healed him. Jesus restored his sight. And to do that for a man who had been born blind, who had never seen in his whole life, 
was something that astounded everybody around. And so it got caught the attention of the religious leaders who called this man in to question him about what happened. And this is the man born blind. This is his opportunity to bear witness for Christ. Quite literally, it was almost like a court setting. They were sitting there. He was standing there. They're grilling him with questions. Who did this? And he bore witness. He said, um, the, the man Jesus did this. And he didn't back down even when they started threatening him. And that, that man bore the cost of bearing witness to Christ. They put him out of the synagogue, as Jesus said uh, to his disciples, that they would do to them. <clears throat> but it doesn't have to be just this literal bearing of witness. <clears throat> it could be just the, the very fact of living out your life in faithfulness to Christ. That sometimes can be a way of bearing witness. People can see just in the way we act, even without what we say, that there's something different. There's a different set of commitments that we're committed to, as I mentioned earlier. That in itself can be a way of bearing witness and in itself can bring down uh, that hatred of the world because it shows that you're different, that you're committed to different things. One of the, the classic examples of this that... Uh, that happens is um, perhaps it's soon after you've become a Christian. So those of you students, you may have experienced this uh, just in the past week. Um, if um, you became a Christian at college and you spent the last week at home with friends that you knew before you were a Christian, sometimes you might find yourself in a situation where um, you realize that you don't want, no longer want to partake in the things that you did with those friends um, if you feel that it doesn't honor the Lord. If it's uh, going out and doing certain things that that is not your thing to do anymore, um, you don't even have to say anything to your friends about that you think it's wrong. You're deciding not to go along with that or suggesting you do something else together. Um, they might see even that as a uh, uh, a living out. You're bearing witness to who Jesus is, and uh, it's not pleasing to people a lot of the time. <laughs> So we've looked at a few reasons, but the final and most fundamental reason for this hatred from the world is what Jesus points out a couple times, first in verse 21. And that, the fundamental reason, is that uh, is that the world does not know the Father. Verse 21, it's in 16, chapter 16, verse 3 as well, where Jesus says, They will do these things, and there, of course, he's speaking of the persecution, They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. This is the fundamental reason for the hatred from the world. And it's key for us to remember. The world does not know the Father. The world does not know God in His character, does not know God's grace. The world does not know the love that God has expressed for us in Christ. Because it doesn't know those things, the world does not believe that we were made by God in a particular way for a particular purpose. It doesn't have the view that we were crafted together in a certain way personally and particularly. It doesn't have the view that God is with us all the time. 
they don't know the Father. And that leads to the, the hatred. There's the, that creates just a huge gulf between those who trust in the Lord and those who aren't there yet. <clears throat> Not knowing the Father means everything. For, for those who do trust Christ, it's the anchor of our worldview. It's what is the foundation for everything we believe. And Jesus reminds his disciples, the world doesn't know the Father nor me. <clears throat> that explains what the hatred is about. It also leads us into the first way of answering the question, how to respond to the world's hatred. <clears throat> and uh, that the first, the first way to respond is don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. This message is really the, the practical core of what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He's basically saying, okay guys, let me tell you about something that's going to happen. I don't want you to be surprised when it happens. This stuff is going to go down. I want you to be ready for it. That's what he's saying at the end of the, the section we read when he says, I've said these things so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So, don't be surprised. If you are surprised by the hatred of the world, it is much harder to persevere. Because when, when you start to detect hatred in whatever form it is, whether it's being shunned by somebody who might be feeling convicted, not by something you've said, but just by the choices you make, um, or in cases where it's more severe, our natural reaction is to pull back. If we're surprised, like, where's this coming from? I must be doing something wrong. Let me, let me pull back. Or perhaps our, our inclination is to, to fight back in those cases. But neither of those is a helpful response. We'll talk more about what the helpful response can be. But for now, let's just um, remember that, uh, that we shouldn't be surprised. And let us take comfort in this too. Because when we do face persecution or resistance of some kind, it's easy to start thinking, there must be something wrong. There, maybe, maybe God isn't in control of this. Maybe, maybe I'm just messed up and this, I've, I've messed up God's plan. There's all kinds of thoughts that might run through our heads. It's easy to go down that trail of fear and uncertainty. But we have a comfort here. This is why Jesus told his disciples and why John related to us that he wants us to know that, that he knows these things are coming. Even if we're surprised by the world's hatred, God is not surprised by it. He wants us to be ready. I want to share a caution as well that's related to this because there's surprise, but if you take surprise and, and combine it <clears throat> With taking offense at the world's hatred, you end up with we might call it indignation. That instead of being fearful, we might be might feel indignant at the world and its hatred. <clears throat> this is evident in uh, if we might say, "Can you believe the garbage that's on TV these days?" Or, "Boy, politician so and so, if he keeps doing what he's doing, he's just going to run the country into the ground." Uh, ideas like that take 
take some surprise at the world and, and what the world is doing and combine it with kind of a sense of self-righteousness, kind of a sense that we deserve better than what the world is doing, and even kind of a naivete regarding what we were just saying about that the world doesn't know the Father. We shouldn't expect the world to act as if they're in conformity with, with what we believe. And to express in kind of that indignant air that it should is, uh, for one, is not is not reflective of the, the reality of things. It's also just a terrible witness to anyone who might hear it. Because the, the person who doesn't share those convictions is going to hear you're complaining, not in a winsome way, but in, a, in, in the way that it is, that it's just kind of a self-righteous complaint, um, but not an engaging and not a real response to, to what's happening. <laughs> So watch out for that sense of indignation. <clears throat> Replace it with a sense of compassion. Remind yourself that um, the world doesn't know the Father. Think of where you would be if you didn't know the Father. Remember that it's no different from, from where the world is. And, and, and extend your sense of compassion. <clears throat> I was convicted of this in my own life um, back when I was in college. Um, there were points in college when uh, I remember saying something like, boy, I, I just don't understand why all those those frat guys just go and get drunk on the weekends. But But that was a disingenuous thing to say. Because if I was honest, I did understand why they did that. And... To, to pretend that I didn't just it was putting this distance between me and them that was built on self-righteousness and not on the gospel. So uh, beware of that indignation. Another way to respond to the world's hatred is don't take it personally. It's a little bit similar to that indignation idea. But in verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. This is a natural mistake to fall into. It's natural because all of us in our nature naturally express a great deal of pride. We tend to make things about us. We naturally interpret things around us in a way that makes it all about, that I do, that makes it all about me. And so we might do that with the, the hatred of the world too. But don't fall into that trap of thinking that the hatred of the world is all about you. What we're talking, and of course, what we're talking about is the hatred that comes from bearing witness to Jesus. So if you have been faithful in sharing about your faith with somebody and they reject you, don't take that personally. Don't take that as a rejection of you. Because, again, the reasons we talked about that the world hates hates Christians, <clears throat> it's about God's holiness. It's about the standard of, of God's holiness. <clears throat> it's about they're not knowing the Father. It's not about you. <clears throat> so take comfort in that. Uh, remind yourself of that. Take comfort also in the fact that, uh, that Jesus promises blessing for those who do experience this hatred. At the end of the Beatitudes in Matthew... 
Jesus said this. Trying to find it here. He said that, um, this is in the end of, in chapter 5 of Matthew. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If the hatred you're experiencing is because, is on the account of Christ, if it's because you've been faithful to him, rejoice in that. Don't take it personally. Don't take it as offense from the other person. But trust that God is going to work through that and that God has a reward for those who suffer that persecution. Now, on the other hand, and I'm not going to go far into this, but there is a way of winning hatred from people that is not for Christ's name, uh, that comes from just from being a jerk <laughs> and sinning against people. And uh, Jesus is not promising reward for doing that. He does work through us even in our weakness. But uh, but this is, please don't take this as a license to say whatever you feel like saying to people and then saying, oh, it's because you're not a Christian, you hate, you hate Jesus. <clears throat> so don't take it personally. <clears throat> another reason, um, another way that we should respond to the world's hatred is to remember where your home is. Remember where your home is. This is what Jesus is getting at in verse 19 of chapter 5, where he says this, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We talked about this earlier when uh, we talked about our not being of the world, if we're in Christ. Uh, Let's broaden out a little bit just from considering the hatred of the world to just considering this question of where is our home? Because certainly hatred from the world is one of those places that makes us feel insecure. It makes us feel like there's something wrong with our situation. And all of us face the temptation to try to arrange things in our lives so that we can feel comfortable, so that we can feel safe, so that we can feel immune from whatever the world might bring at us. What Jesus is saying here should remind us that we should not expect to feel at home in our lives today. We should not expect to feel at home in the world because it's not our home. This has come home to me recently. One of the things that... uh, that I've been, uh, that the Lord has really been showing me as a pattern in my life is a tendency to, to feel that I'm out of control. Um, to feel that there's just so much going on in my life that I can't possibly do everything well. And so my temptation to respond to that is to try to shrink the world down to a more manageable set of things. And often that's by focusing on one project or something like that, that I can I can take this one thing and I can make it great and I can feel better about myself because I can feel secure, I can feel at home because I'm pretending that all these other things don't exist and I'm just focusing on this one thing. 
But of course, that, that is, that's trying to make a home here instead of believing Jesus when he says that, that the world is not my home. And of course, it leads to neglecting all those other things that I'm pretending aren't there. And that's neglecting people. That's neglecting opportunities to serve the Lord. It's even neglecting my work. It doesn't work well just for my work, too. And uh, it doesn't it doesn't lead to a place where I feel at home, where I feel secure. So let me encourage you to evaluate yourself. And let me uh, bring this up again for for those of you who are here and you are you're trying to determine who Jesus is. You're trying to determine if these claims he makes are worth staking your life on. Those are good questions to ask. As you do so, consider whether your experience matches up with what Jesus is saying here. Does your experience include this feeling that there's something missing from your life? That you feel an insecurity? That there's there's things in your life that you can't control and that there's fear or uncertainty that comes from that? If you've experienced that, you're experiencing what Jesus is describing here. What Jesus is saying matches up with what you've what you've seen in your own life. Jesus is saying you don't have to stay here. Jesus is offering himself. And as we're going to see explained more fully in next week's text, Jesus is offering an invitation to the place that is your home, to the place where those insecurities will be gone, where you can feel secure. So embrace that explanation and put your hope in him. He won't disappoint you. For those of you who are believers, who have trusted in Christ, let me ask you a different question. How's it going in terms of the world's hatred? Are you perhaps at a place where you and the world get along pretty well? If so, ask yourself whether you are bearing witness to Christ in all the ways that you could. If if you're not experiencing the world's hatred, then I think we see from this text that that there are opportunities for you to bear witness that you are missing. I'm not saying that everyone who lives faithfully is going to be martyred. Some people who live faithfully will be martyred, as Jesus says here. But, but not everybody. And especially here in the United States, we live in a place where we're so sheltered from these more drastic consequences, these most violent expressions of hatred from the world. But there's a tendency that we have subconsciously when we perceive that there's a possibility of experiencing the world's hatred. We don't even consider doing something. It's not that we consciously weigh things against each other. Should I mention, should I invite my neighbor to church? Well, he might say, no, you're a stupid Christian. So I'm not going to do that. We don't think like that. But before we even get to the point of considering asking, we have this kind of we pull back. Oh, he, he might think we, I'm weird or something, and so we don't even 
I didn't really think of doing it. And that, that instance writ across our entire lives leads to a place where we claim Christ, but we really get along with the world pretty well. And if that describes your situation, repent of that. Repent of getting along with the world and going along with the world's priorities and ask Jesus how you can change. Pray that God would reveal the opportunities that you have to bear witness for him if you're not seeing them. And then pray that he would give you the courage to take those opportunities when they come up. I'm going to close with a story, a couple of stories, um, of examples of trusting the Lord to help us bear witness. The first of those stories is from my own life, in a case where I didn't take the best opportunity to, to witness for Christ. When I was in college, I was an RA, um, and my first year being an RA, I was an RA in the building on campus at Gettysburg that had the reputation for being the rowdy dorm. <laughs> and my floor lived up to that reputation. And um, by the end of the fall semester of my first time being an RA, half, literally half of my floor had either left the school for grades or disciplinary reasons or been transferred to another building for disciplinary reasons. So it was a tough floor. Um, I had many meetings with my supervisor who you know, worked for the college about what to do about this case or what to do about that case, how to handle this. The week of finals, they, the college posted a security guard on my floor 24-7 to reduce vandalism and to give those who were on the floor who wanted to study a chance to study. <clears throat> Early the next semester, we were having a meeting of all the RAs together. All the student RAs, all the professional staff. And my supervisor in this meeting, we were just sharing about how things have been going. She, she shared about what had been happening on my floor. And she, she said uh, in front of everybody, Brian, I've just been so impressed with your, your stability, how you just haven't gotten upset or frazzled by this. I don't know how you do it. And every head in the room turned to me to see how I was going to respond. An opportunity to bear witness. I honestly don't remember what I said. It wasn't a complete cop-out. I said something that, if you interpreted it, would have shown that I was talking about Jesus. But as I look back on that, that was an opportunity to be more explicit than that, to bear witness, that, that I regret missing. I want to close with a story where of a man who did not hold back um, on bearing witness. <clears throat> this is a uh, an abridgment of a of an excerpt from uh, the the biography of John Patton, who was a missionary to an island in the South Pacific in the 19th century. <clears throat> um, a few things, just background: the the name of the island he was on was called Tana, so you'll hear that mentioned. Um, Tana is now in, uh, for those of you who are geographically gifted, in what's called uh, Vanuatu right now, in case you're interested. Um, also, you'll hear somebody referred to as Missy. Uh, that is not the way we would say Missy. That's short for missionary. That's what the natives called John Patton as the missionary. 
Um, but this is a story not of John Patton standing up and bearing witness, but of one of the natives doing it. At a village near the mission house lived Namuri, a native of Anitium, which was a neighboring island, who had been converted. By his faithful Christian life and by his teaching, he showed the Tannies what the love of God could do. One morning, a sacred man, this is the religious establishment on the island, jealous of Namuri's influence, tried to kill him by throwing a stone at him, a deadly weapon called a killing stone. The teacher escaped to the mission house, severely wounded, faint and bleeding. When he saw Mr. Patton, he said, Missy, quick, and escape for your life. They are coming to kill you. They say that they must kill us all today, and they have begun with me, for they hate Jehovah, and they hate us because we worship him. Mr. Patton tenderly cared for the teacher, and in a few weeks he was better. Then he longed to go back to his village, and when Mr. Patton begged him to stay at the mission house, he said, Missy, when I see them thirsting for my blood... I just see myself when the missionary first came to my island. I desired to murder him as they now desire to kill me. Had he stayed away because of such danger, I would have remained heathen. But he came and continued coming to teach us till, by the grace of God, I was changed to what I am. Now the same God that changed me to this can change these poor tannies to love and serve him. I cannot stay away from them. I will sleep at the mission house, but do all I can by day to bring them to Jesus. So that's what he did. He would stay at night with with John Patton, but during the day he went back to his village and shared Jesus with them. After a few weeks, the same priest attacked him again and left him thinking he was dead. With the little strength that was left, he crawled to Mr. Patton's house. His beloved Missy was with him in his dying hours, caring for him and comforting him. Very patiently, he bore all his suffering, saying, For Jesus' sake, for Jesus' sake, for those who had so cruelly persecuted him, he prayed, O Lord Jesus, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. O take not away all thy servants from Tana. Take not away thy worship from this dark island. O God, bring all the Tannies to love and follow Jesus. And so he passed away a faithful martyr. Mr. Patton himself made Namuri's coffin and dug his grave, and tearfully and prayerfully they laid him away. Jesus is very upfront with us about the cost of following him. Not all of us will be called to the cost that Namuri paid, but we are called to a cost. But as Namuri lived for, We're called to the promise of God changing not only us, but those around us as we have the courage to bear witness for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, that you, far from hiding the cost of following you to deceive us, that you are real, that you tell us what is may be required of us, and not just tell us, but you give us the strength to, to bear it by your Spirit. We do ask that you would send your Spirit to us, that we would have the wisdom to discern those opportunities to bear witness, that we would have the courage to speak up in those opportunities. We thank you that you work through us. We thank you that 
all of this, all of this pain is headed toward the glorious kingdom that you are bringing together. We thank you that in you we have protection, that you protect us and love us and watch over us. In Jesus' name, amen.